Let's now turn together to our confession to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, page 526 in our book of praise. Under the heading, God the Son and our redemption, we continue to speak about and examine what it is that we confess in the various articles of the Apostles' Creed. Lord's Day 11, question 29 asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus that is Savior? And our response is, because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. In question 30, we're asked, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And we respond, no. Though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. As far the reading from our confession, may God bless the reading of His Word and also the confession of the church and also the proclamation of His Word this evening. Following the sermon, we will respond by singing together from Psalm 89, the 6th and 7th stanzas. Psalm 89, stanzas 6 and 7, we'll sing in response to the proclamation of God's Word. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. You may know those words. You may recognize those words. Shakespeare put those words in the mouth of Juliet in the play Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, you might know the story. They were members of feuding families, and they had fallen in love. And Juliet declares that Romeo's name means nothing in reality, and I'll just cite what she says. She says, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name.'" What's in a name? And that's that famous quote. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes. Without that title, Romeo, doff thy name. And for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. So she wants Romeo to leave that name behind. And so Romeo responds, he says, I take thee at thy word, call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. So for the sake of Juliet, for the sake of his love, Romeo says, I will gladly leave behind my name, and I will gladly leave behind everything that that name stands for. Now this evening, we're going to ask the question, what's in a name? And we're going to do that not about the name of Romeo, but we're going to do it about a very special name and a specific name, which is the name Jesus. Our Savior, God's Son, was deliberately and specifically given this particular name. And so it's important. There's many things about Jesus that are important. It's important that he was born a Jew. It's important that he was born in Bethlehem. It's important that he was born to a virgin. It's important that he was born of the tribe of Judah. 
But it's also important that his name was Jesus. It wasn't Bob or Fred or John. It's Jesus. And so we can see how important that name was in the gospel accounts of the events that led up to the Savior's birth. In Matthew 1, the gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from all their sins. And then in the same chapter, four verses later, verse 25, we're told specifically that Joseph obeyed the angel and he called his name Jesus. Then in the gospel according to Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we see that the command to give him the name Jesus wasn't just given to Joseph. It was also given to Mary by the angel Gabriel. And he said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And so when it comes to the Lord Jesus, what's in a name? Apparently, quite a bit. So what is this name? This name Jesus. First of all, it's a Greek name. It's how the Jews translated the Old Testament name Joshua or Jehoshua, Yeshua in the Hebrew pronunciation. Now there is no sh sound, S-H sound in Greek. So that S-H became an S. And then the ending was adapted to the Greek form so that it could be used in the Greek language as a typical Greek noun. So nouns in Greek have different endings depending on uh, the role they play in a sentence. And so that's the name Jesus, the Greek form of the word Joshua, the name Joshua or Jehoshua. Now in Numbers 13, we read together about the most well-known Joshua of history prior to Jesus, who was Joshua the son of Nun. He was one of the men who initially spied out the land of Canaan. He was Moses' assistant, and then he would be the one who would take Moses' place as the mediator and as the leader of God's people, leading them into the promised land when Moses wasn't permitted to. And we can see the importance of names here as well, as we often see in Scripture. We see it time and time again. In verse 16, we read together, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now, there's no explanation here about that name change. So why would Moses change Hoshea's name? Why would he do that? The name Hoshea means salvation. And an explanatory note in the New English translation explains that the difference in the names is slight. It's a change from he saves to the Lord saves. The Greek text of the Old, Old Testament uses Yesun, which is Jesus, for the Hebrew Yeshua. And so one commentarist says this, he said this, Joshua's very name expressed his faith in the Lord. His name at birth was Hoshea, salvation, but Moses gave him the name Yehoshua, or Joshua, the Lord saved. A small shift, yet a crucial one. Because it's one thing to have faith in salvation. Yes, salvation exists. Now that might just be a hope, the author continues, that uh, representing a generic hope that's expressed in a thousand Hollywood movies. That if you simply believe in something, anything, whatever that might be, strongly enough, 
something's going to turn up at the crucial moment. You just have to believe. It may simply be faith in faith, a belief in the power of believing. But the name Yehoshua expresses the specific hope that at the crucial moment, someone would turn up. So Joshua had, saved, had faith in the saving presence of the Lord, Israel's God, and Joshua's name reflected that. And we can see that in that same story. We can see that from right from the time that the spies returned from spying out the promised land. Now, ten of the spies, you may remember the story, they were freaked out by what they saw in Canaan. But Caleb and Joshua tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is Numbers 14, verses 6 to 9, they said, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord saves Joshua, Jesus. So when Moses died, as I already said, Jesus, uh, Joshua would become the mediator, the savior of his people. God would use him to save his people from their wilderness wandering, which was a result of their sin. And then much later, there would be another Joshua who would come on the scene in the Old Testament, and that would be Joshua the high priest. And Joshua the high priest, together with Zerubbabel, would begin work on the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And they would also, in their own way, lead the people of Israel out of exile and begin the work of restoration. And so this name, this very simple name, very common name, the name Joshua had a venerable history. It wasn't an unusual name. It's still a pretty common name in the English language. Even though in English, unlike in Spanish and other languages, no one would ever give their son the name Jesus, Joshua is still often heard. But this simple name, this common name, is an important name because it is in itself a confession of faith. Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, he saves. And so this name itself is a confession of trust it's a declaration of the truth. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. But we know none of these earlier Joshuas could ever provide the ultimate deliverance that humanity needs. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read about Joshua. And about Joshua, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So a Joshua was needed, but not merely a human Joshua, not like a Joshua like Joshua the son of Nun or Joshua the high priest, however great these men were and however much they accomplished for God's people. This Joshua that the world needed Jesus can be the complete and only Savior because he is God in human flesh. He is truly God and truly man. He could do what these other Joshuas could never do. 
so, brothers and sisters, we confess that his name is important because it reveals who he is, reveals his character, it reveals his being. He saves us from all our sins, and salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. He is the only Savior, and he is the complete Savior. And so that means that salvation can only be found in him, and it means that salvation from beginning to end, every aspect of it, is his work. And so it's not as though he begins the work, he sets things in motion, and then we chip in our bit and we do the rest. No. No one and nothing else can contribute to our salvation, either in ourself or in anyone else. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. And that's because the name of Jesus, like the name of God, the Lord, the Lord in all capital letters, Yahweh, That name represents who he is. It represents the totality of his being. And the importance of his name makes clear the meaning of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it makes it clear that that commandment is about something uh, very much more important, much deeper than simply using God's name or the name of Jesus as an exclamation or as a curse word. Now, it certainly isn't a good thing when people use the word Jesus or the word Christ as as an epithet or an expression of surprise or disgust. And it's especially bad when disappointing when Christians do it. But when we leave, when, when we have a tendency to leave the importance of Jesus' name at that alone, that we need to use it properly in our speech, that means we're missing the bigger picture, really. Because when we speak about someone's name, we speak about their reputation. A person can have a good name or a bad name. A business can have a good name or a bad name. That means that they have a good reputation. Their reputation is known and it's positive. Now this usage about names is also found in the Bible and it's also specifically found concerning the name of Jesus. And let's turn to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. So Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples, and King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Herod thought that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. But the fact is that Jesus' name was becoming known, his reputation, not just the fact that his, uh, what people called him was becoming known. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 20 and 21, we read that the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, seated him uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then he also writes in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. So he has the name that is above every name. It's greater than any other name. And that means that the person whose name it is, is greater, is above everything else. He is exalted above every creature. So that means we need to make sure we use the name of Jesus reverently, properly in our speech. But it means much more than that. It means we need to exalt the name of Jesus by exalting the person of Jesus. His name is who he is. Acts chapter 3, verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man, this man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. A healing in Jesus' name. So it's not that this name is kind of a magic mantra. Some people treat it that way. It's not that saying his name has a kind of special power, or by repeating his name, we can have some kind of power. That's the kind of thinking that you do see among some Christians. But it's really the equivalent of paganism or magical thinking, where if you know the name of something or someone... It was believed in paganism that you could control that person. But this man, in Acts chapter 3, he was saved by faith in the name of Jesus, which means that he was saved by faith in the person of Jesus, in everything that that name stands for. And we are called to believe in that name. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Now, it's also vitally important to focus on the fact that the name of Jesus stands for a very specific person. It stands for the Jesus who is revealed in Scripture. Because there are many people who will claim an allegiance to Jesus, But that allegiance that they have is not an allegiance to the one who really bore that name. Sadly, many people worship a false Christ, not the Son of God. Claiming allegiance to the name of Jesus Christ while worshiping something, someone that isn't the Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture doesn't mean anything. Jesus is the complete and only Savior. He's not simply one of the prophets, even one of the greatest prophets. He's not the greatest created being. He's not, as some say, the spirit brother of Lucifer, of Satan. He's not just a wise man who told people that they needed to love one another. It's the modern popular view. He's not just a good example to us. He is 
the eternal Son of God. He is the Savior, and through faith in His name, and only in His name, in Him, salvation is to be sought and found. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He himself said that. In the beginning of our worship, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Psalm 20, verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And when the New Testament speaks of the name of Jesus, it speaks of the name in the same way. We trust in the name of the Lord, and we trust in the name of Jesus, because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God. And knowing the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus, the genuine Jesus, knowing Him means more than knowing about Him. It means trusting in Him, and it means trusting in His name. It means trusting in Him for all things. It means that He he has to be everything to us and for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we are in Christ Jesus. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is everything. And so we trust, and we must trust in Christ alone. We can't trust in ourselves. We don't place our trust and our confidence in ourselves or in anyone else. We know ourselves. We know our own strength or our lack of strength. We can't trust in our own strength because we have none. We can't rely on our own obedience. We can't rely on our own stringent application of God's commandments in our lives. Because no matter how good we are at keeping God's commandments, we are never going to be good enough to earn anything from God. And besides that, when we do what's right, And we will be blessed. Anything that we do that's right comes from God. It's Him who is working in us. And we can't rely on anyone else because we know that everyone else is in the same boat that we are. We can't trust in the gods of this world. We can't trust in money. We can't trust in possessions. We can't trust in relationships. We can't trust in careers. These are all the things that we're tempted to rely on. But we can't trust in these things to provide everything for us. Because they never were meant in the first place to provide what we all too often seek from them. We trust in Jesus because He alone is worthy of our trust. And we don't just trust in Him for the future. Trusting in Christ is much more, it's much deeper, much more profound than simply looking forward to the last day, trusting in Him for our future salvation. In the end, it's all going to work out all right because I have faith in Jesus and I trust in Him. No, we can trust in Him and we must trust in Him in the present. 
Trust in him to give us the wisdom that we need. And we need that wisdom so that our lives will line up with the revealed will of God, with God's way. And so we trust in him to give us righteousness, his imputed righteousness that he credits to us. Because that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is the only means by which we can have a living, continued, intimate relationship with God. But also the righteousness that he works in us through his Holy Spirit. Because that allows us to reign with him, to fight boldly with a clear and good conscience against the devil and against sin in this life. And so we trust in him for our sanctification. That definitive sanctification, which is that holiness that we receive as a gift that separates us, that distinguishes us from the unbelieving world around us. And the holiness that we can grow in day by day. And then we trust in him for our redemption, knowing that we belong to him today because he has bought us with his precious blood. He has paid the price for us he has redeemed us, and we will enjoy eternal life with him. Now, brothers and sisters, that is a lot of trust to place in someone, especially since that trust is based on faith and not necessarily on our personal experience. So when we're struggling, when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling with doubt, when we're struggling with failures, in our Christian walk, when we're struggling with grief and sadness and with being overwhelmed by everything that's happening in the world, as some of us are, as many people are, when we're struggling in this way, we need to continue to trust. And we can continue to trust because in this way, we're not letting our emotions guide us. We're not letting experience alone guide us. When we're suffering, we need to continue to trust, and we trust in Jesus Christ, who suffered much more in a much worse way than anything that we will ever suffer in this life. And he did that for us. And so our trust in him can and must be complete and absolute. It must be all-encompassing, and it can be all-encompassing. Now, this is easy to say, but in practice, it's more difficult. Adam and Eve, our first parents, their sin was rooted in their desire for independence. And they were refusing to live in a continuous state of dependence on their God and submission to their Creator. Now, our sinful nature leads us to rankle against dependence. We get our backs up about that. Now, even as Christians, we often have a hard time believing that we are dependent in every aspect of our Christian life, our Christian walk, every aspect of our lives. We are dependent beings. Now, this will play out in different ways in different people's lives, but often it works out in this way, that people want to contribute something to their own salvation. In contrast with the human desire to contribute something, if not everything, to managing their life and their salvation. The Lord Jesus teaches us that he is the one who is to be trusted absolutely and completely. 
And I said that this comes to us by faith. This is a question of faith. But it's not a blind faith. It's not a faith that's based in nothing. It's not wishful thinking. Jesus Christ has proven himself to be trustworthy. He is completely unlike any human being in in whom we could place our trust. Because as happens all too often, human beings can and do fail us. And when we put our trust in others and we put them in the position of God, and when they stand in the position of, of mediator between God and us, when we do that, we will suffer because they will fail. But Jesus Christ is unlike, completely unlike any created being in whom we can place our trust. Because he, unlike the created things, is meant to be trusted. Now we can look back through history And we can look back especially at the history recorded for us in the New Testament to see how trustworthy he is. And when we do that, when we read God's word and when we meditate on God's word and when we prayerfully accept God's word, our faith and our trust are strengthened. If we're not in God's word, if we're not learning more about Jesus, if we're not learning to love him more and learning to trust him more by spending time in God's word, then we're going to have a harder time trusting in him as well. But when we trust in him, when we trust in him in the present and and for the future, then and only then can we truly live in peace. Brothers and sisters, we know his name. The Lord saves And we know that his name reveals who he is. And so we confess his name. And as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, when we confess his name, we have to back up that confession with our actions. We trust in his name and and we need to live out that trust by not seeking our salvation or our well-being in saints, in ourselves, or anywhere else, as our catechism says. Perhaps not many of us are tempted to seek our well-being in saints. But we are tempted often to seek our well-being in other places. But in Jesus Christ alone, our hope is found. Knowing that, living out that knowledge, we could rest secure. Because neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will ever, ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen.